Good old Jonah. You got to love a guy who's really mad because God is nice, right? Like he's like, oh, God, you're too merciful. I don't like it. Okay, so this song is not in our hymnal, but I want to see if anybody knows it. And you can sing along with me. Somebody's knocking at your door. Somebody's knocking at your door. Oh, sinner, why don't you answer? Somebody's knocking at your door. Okay, so if the somebody who is knocking at your door is God, then I think we all know that sometimes you don't want to answer, right? Have you ever had that experience of maybe hearing a still, small voice and it's telling you something that you don't want to hear? or telling you to do something that you would really rather not do. When we hear that little knock at the door of our hearts that's telling us to reach out and to do something difficult, to mend a relationship, to give our time or our money, sometimes we just want to cover our ears, right? Because we don't want to answer the door. The prophet Jonah is kind of the poster boy for not answering the door, like in the most dramatic of ways possible. God's voice comes to him and tells him to go to Nineveh and bring a message to the people there of warning to help them. And Jonah just like turns right around and runs the other way as fast as he can. He is so keen on running away from God's invitation that he jumps into the next boat that he can find. And then that's where things really get weird. You've heard this story before, I trust. But before we dive in, thank you, see what I did there? Before we dive in, uh, a couple of words about what this story is and what it isn't. So when I was a kid, I was actually really scared of this story because the idea of God sending a giant fish to swallow up a man was not particularly soothing, I thought. And I remember um, puzzling over this story and wondering, like, how can this actually be? How can a fish swallow up a person? And then he's in there, and he's praying, and then he gets spit out, and he's still alive. And when I became old enough to understand that this is not possible, that giant fish don't just swallow people and then spit them back up again unharmed, I came to the conclusion that it wasn't a true story, and I should just set it aside. And that, of course, was a big mistake. Because when we set aside stories because we think only the true stories matter, then we miss out on a lot of really important things. Because truths often come to us in stories that are not factually accurate. Just because something didn't happen doesn't mean that it's not true. Stories, allegories, metaphors, myths, all of these contain great truths. One of my favorite theologians, Marcus Borg, used to talk about the way that a good story can convey more truth than just a factual, accurate accounting of what really happened. So those who heard this story of Jonah and the fish long ago would have immediately known that it was not supposed to be a factual story. For one thing, it is way too hilarious to be a historical recollection of a prophet's life. The themes in this story are larger than life. It is very clearly, if you know the style, a parody of this style of literature, this prophetic literature. And once you've read a lot of stories of the prophets in the Bible, then you can read Jonah and you will laugh out loud because the author of this story is mimicking that style of literature so well. What can I say when you're a Bible nerd, you find weird things to be hilarious. 
So Jonah is meant to remind us, I think, of other prophets in the Bible who were also not thrilled when God came knocking on their doors. Think about Moses and the burning bush. We talked about him last week. Elijah, who also ran away as fast as he could. Jeremiah, who was like, seriously, God, why me? I'm too young. Nobody wants to listen to me. So when our anti-hero Jonah runs away from God, he is reminding us of a lot of other people, and he's just doing it on a much grander and more hilarious scale. Eventually, there are a lot of twists and turns, All's well kinds of ends well for the people of Nineveh in this story. After that spectacle of near drowning and near digestion by a fish, Jonah gets vomited up onto dry land. I told you it was funny. And he decides that if this god of his is going to be so very annoyingly relentless, he might as well just go to Nineveh and get it over with. And so he does what he's supposed to do, as we heard this morning, and I imagine him, I think as Jim was also imagining him, walking across Nineveh in sort of a half-hearted way, casually yelling, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. 40 days, Nineveh's going to be overthrown. And the really funny part is that even though he doesn't do a very good job of it, it actually works. The people listen, and they repent and the city is saved. Yay, Jonah, you did it. So Jonah's reluctance was reminding me this week when I was thinking about it of a phone call that I received from Edith Guffey, who was then our conference minister back in 2019. Edith was getting ready to retire, and she asked me if I would be willing to enter into a six-year cycle, presidential cycle, for our conference of the Kansas-Oklahoma Churches of the UCC. And my immediate reaction, you know what it was, right? Was like, let me just run as far away from this as I can. Um, it's not that I don't care about our conference or that I wasn't flattered to be asked. It's just that, you know, I had some other things going on. And, and it felt like board leadership is really not my favorite thing to do. And, you know, it's a six-year-long commitment, and that kind of felt like a lot. But... Edith is really hard to say no to, for one thing, so I did not say no immediately. I told her I needed some space to discern, and then I spent time praying and talking with my family and some colleagues and some friends, and I finally decided that I would accept because I felt, after a lot of discernment, that my skills could be useful during this time of transition to a new conference minister. Did you remember that I said that this happened at the end of 2019? guess what happens next? Spoiler alert, little did I know that a pandemic was looming and that everything in my life was about to get a whole lot harder. Little did I know it turns out much of anything at all when I said yes to this call. In fact, I feel like it is only now, years into this gig and just finishing up my role as president, that I'm kind of starting to get the hang of things now that I'm almost done. So real talk, there have been numerous times in the last four years when I have felt like running away from this commitment that I made. I'm sure nobody else here can relate, right? Like you've never had something like this happen. But I stayed the course. I have learned a lot. And last week, Janet can attest that I very joyfully passed the gavel to the next president as I moved into my two-year term as past president. 
Last weekend, when Jan and I were at the annual meeting for the Kansas-Oklahoma conference, I looked around the room, and I just felt this deep, abiding love for the people there. Everyone was there in that room because we care about the church. All of us were there because at some point in time, we heard a knock on our door, and we decided to answer. And the people who were there, the people that are serving in conference leadership, are people with full-time jobs. They are people with lots of other volunteer obligations, people with family commitments. They are people like our own Janet, who took a vacation day to go attend the annual meeting on top of all of the other things that we already know she does for our church and community here in Manhattan. They're all people like that. The clergy there are people who work as local church pastors like I do, or perhaps they are chaplains, or perhaps they have retired after many years of service. Some of them are bivocational pastors. That means that they work another full-time job. Some of them are teachers, social workers, and then they step into a pulpit every weekend on top of that. The conference, when I was looking around and thinking about it, I realized how it's not that different from our congregation. Every year, the conference makes a budget. Every year, people wonder about how we're going to possibly find the funds that we need to do the ministry that we are called to do in the world. Every year, we prayerfully discern how we are going to best steward our time, our energy, and our money. And this year at annual meeting, we had a particularly robust and faithful conversation about the conference budget, which resulted, this was spicy, in a nomination from the floor, oh, I'm sorry, not a nomination, an amendment, an amendment from the floor to increase the amount that was budgeted. It was spicy, guys, for a church meeting, let me tell you. The amendment was to increase the amount that we had budgeted for our part-time associate conference minister. Now, while we are not quite sure where we would find the money to do that, the delegates felt strongly that we have to invest in that role to expand and sustain our ministry. And so this wasn't an easy conversation, but it was a rich conversation, and it was an honest conversation. It was respectful. And at one point, there was even a call from the floor for people to make pledges, like raise your hand if you can commit to $100 a month. How about $50 a month? How about $25 a month? It was really exciting. When the meeting was over, I went to the KO website, and I decided that I would make a pledge for 2024, whereas in the past, I've just kind of given money to the conference sporadically. As I have served in leadership roles with the conference, I have come to understand how important it is for those who make the budgets to have a clearer sense of people's plans so that then they can steward our resources faithfully. Like us here at First Congregational, the conference is also a faithful and scrappy group. Despite being one of the smallest conferences throughout the United Church of Christ, the KO Conference continues to make immense contributions to the wider church. Our part-time staff members are regularly tapped to serve in part-time roles in other conferences because they're so good at what they do. Our conference minister, Lorraine Sinaceros, serves on so many national boards, I can't even keep track of how many there are. I hope she knows how many national boards she's on, but it's a lot. Lorraine is one of three people from the Kansas-Oklahoma Conference who serves on the national board of the United Church of Christ, the national board of our entire denomination. That board is chaired by Julia Gaughan, who is a part of our conference. She serves as the part-time pastor of Peace Church in Alma. The conference is full of congregations just like ours, 
congregations that are loving loudly and working for justice. There are congregations like ours that march in pride parades. There are clergy who show up relentlessly at state houses to advocate for LGBTQ folks. There are clothing drives, period product drives, food drives, community meals, fundraisers for disaster relief. When Tulsa had that terrible storm earlier this year, if you remember, people just started spontaneously sending money to Fellowship UCC because we knew that they would be able to put those funds to use in their community. Other churches in our conference have after-school programs. They have ministries to queer folks who are in jail. They have pub theology gatherings. They do anti-racism work. They're relieving medical debt. There are groups that are caring for people who have been through religious trauma. There are youth service trips, just like the ones that our youth took to Albuquerque. There are children's Christmas pageants. There are support groups for parents. And some of the smallest churches have done incredible things. Partridge Community Church, which is very small, started a community garden this year, and they've had it open to anyone in their town, and they have these events where people come together and they use the produce from the garden, and they cook together and they eat together. Carbondale UCC built a labyrinth on their grounds, and they invited everyone in the community to come and use it. And our friends who are just up the road in Marysville have been lay-led without a pastor this whole entire year since their pastor retired. And while doing the hard work of searching for a new pastor, they have also revitalized their children's and youth ministries, and they've hosted a sacred art series. So during the month of October, as we are considering our gifts to our congregation, I found it so uplifting to be with kindred spirits from the wider church, to know that we are not alone in our desire to use the resources that we have to make the world a more loving and just place. We aren't alone in finding creative ways to be the church during this time of rapid change. At one point in the meeting, we were all placed in these small groups for holy conversations. And my small group was a group of other local pastors. All of them are dear friends. They are the people that I have on speed dial that I call regularly when I need support. And in that meeting, we were talking openly about the challenges and the joys of ministry. And hearing the ways that my colleagues continue to feel called to ministry despite the challenges that they're dealing with was life-giving. And I hope that my gushing about all of the beautiful things that the Spirit is doing here also helped them to sustain their spirits. At one point in the conversation, we were asked to share ways that we were giving and receiving through our own congregations. And one of the other pastors there talked about how for the last several years she has been increasing her own financial giving to her congregation. Every year she tries to increase another percentage or two of her income. And she said that she is now up to 8% and that she wants to keep going. She wants to keep giving more to her congregation because when she gives to her congregation, she feels a sense of joy. And when she said that, that it gives her joy to give, I thought, yes, like I know that feeling too. Every year when I turn in our family's pledge card, I do that with a sense of joy because I am so honored to minister alongside all of you. And I give thanks for the one who keeps knocking at our doors, drawing us outside of our comfort zones, and knitting us together in love. Amen.